Welcome to Conversations with Big Rich. This is an interview-style podcast. Those interviews are all involved in the off-road industry. Being involved, like all of my guests are, is a lifestyle, not just a job. I talk to competitive teams, racers, rock crawlers, business owners, employees, media and private park owners, men and women who have found their way into this exciting and addictive lifestyle. We discuss their personal history, struggles, successes, and reboots. We dive into what drives them to stay active and off-road. We all hope to shed some light on how to find a path into this world we live and love and call off-road. Whether you're crawling the Red Rocks of Moab or hauling your toys to the trail, Maxxis has the tires you can trust for performance and durability. Four wheels or two. Maxxis tires are the choice of champions because they know that whether for work or play, for fun or competition, Maxxis tires deliver. Choose Maxxis. Dread victoriously. Have you seen Four Low Magazine yet? Four Low Magazine is a high-quality, well-written, four-wheel drive-focused magazine for the enthusiast market. If you still love the idea of a printed magazine, something to save and read at any time, Four Low is the magazine for you. Four Low cannot be found in stores, but you can have it delivered to your home or place of business. Visit fourlowmagazine.com to order your subscription today. On today's episode of Conversations with Big Rich, we have Robin Stover. When I first met Robin, it was about 2002, 2004, somewhere in there, maybe three. Um, He was a freelance writer and photographer uh, with Four Wheeler Magazine. He was also, um, has worked as a marketing director, and now he's, uh, I believe, at Lavender Brothers Automotive. That's correct. And I want to say, hey, thanks for coming on board and... uh, and being part of conversations. No, no, thank you for having me. It's an honor. Yeah, it's awesome. So let's start off right away. And, uh, you know, where were you born and raised? Well, let's see. I was born in Aptos, uh, which is a little town near Santa Cruz, California, and uh, didn't spend a whole lot of time there. My parents were on the move, and basically, I grew up in Hawaii. That's where my early oh, childhood wow. memories started. Um, which island lived uh, big island for about five years and then when my parents split up uh, I got kind of batted around between the big island and Oahu for about two years okay and you know that's where I first got my exposure to the off-road scene was on the big island we lived in a very remote area in the northern tip called Kohala and uh, one of our favorite things to do my dad would take us out in his little Subaru car and go splashing through the mud puddles on the back roads. Right. And that's kind of where I, my passion started for off-road awesome. uh, activity. Yeah, it was cool. So that was a neat place to grow up and, uh, you know, plenty of opportunities to get your, your tires in the mud and dirt there, um, especially if you know the locals. Right. And, and uh, that's what we did. We we went to vacation there um, uh-huh. on the Big Island, and we spent, uh, oh, I think it was close to two weeks, and what I realized is that the Big Island is not so big. Yeah, <laughs> like I mean, in two days bigger. we drove every paved road. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you can definitely get around it in a couple of days. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, but then, um, so were your you your parents went from from Aptos, you know, there outside of Santa Cruz, over to to Hawaii. Was was that work wise or what? Yeah, so my dad was a classical musician, uh, does Latin American style classical guitar. Oh, okay. Uh, he passed away four years ago, but in his era of, you know, his passion of guitar, he became one of the world's leaders in a particular genre. And that took him a lot of places like Hawaii, where he could play at clubhouses and that sort of thing. Um, he's also very accomplished in music. He's got many albums and books and, you know, long history in classical guitar music. So that was, you know, having him as my father, that kind of dragged us around to places where he could make money. And uh, when my parents split up, my mom ended up getting custody of my sister and I, and we moved back over to California uh, to La Quinta in the desert, Palm Desert area. And I only spent a year there and then uh, basically moved back up to the Bay Area where my family 
my, my mom went to high school, right? And that's where she, uh, her life was uh, as a young adult. So we moved back into my grandfather's house in San Jose, Los Gatos area. Okay. Very familiar and, with that area. Yeah. And that's where I went to school, you know, middle school on up to high school, a little bit of college there in the Bay Area as well. And then I moved down to L.A. Uh, when I got the job at Four Wheeler. And that was in about 2000, late 2002, early 2003. Okay. And that's really where my uh, immersion into it. I mean, before that, I, I had a Jeep in high school and I was into rock crawling. And, you know, when I graduated from high school, I got a tow rig and started going to Moab Easter Jeep Safari every year. And, you know, took on the whole rock crawling scene full on. Uh, and what you may not know is I actually started writing before I was writing for Four Wheeler. I started with a website that some local guys that I knew in the Bay Area had started called okay. twistedaxle.com. And uh, that's where I got my early, you know, beginnings of writing articles. And when, when about, about what time frame was that? So that was before I moved to LA. So let's see, you just said it'd be 2000, 2001 time frame. Okay. Because if uh, I remember, I met you, I want to say it was at our Moon Rocks competition. Yeah, maybe Moon Rocks or the Cal Rocks event that was up in, uh, Oh, where is it? Roseville or somewhere up there? Um, the foothills of the Sierras, the Tahoe region. Right. Yeah, we did Donner and we've done, uh, but it was the early days. Um, we were at Donner and then at Moon Rocks. And yeah. uh, for some reason, I thought it was there. And that was, a, that was about 2003. Well, was it the Cabo uh, rock crawling thing that happened? Because I, I remember, I think you were involved in that one too. The one in, 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 in down in outside Cabo of Cabo rocks. Yeah. Yeah. No, um, nope. that Baja okay. rocks one. I, I was not involved in that except that I sponsored, um, Bob Rogie and Dustin Webster. Oh yeah. In the event. Yep. And we I had Cal rocks all over the, the vehicle. Yeah. Now that was the era that I got into it. I mean, the people that I looked up to at the time were, you know, the, the Ned Bacon's of, of the world in the magazine world. Right. And I was rooting for a spot in the magazines back then. And that's why I started writing articles because I learned that that was a natural job you could get. And I went, wow, that that's right up my alley. So I really targeted four wheeler because I'd been a reader for many years and uh, they they happened to do an event right in Hollister Hills, which isn't too far from where I grew up in the Bay Area. Right. So it was tangible to actually go down there and, you know, get to know those guys. And that's what, exactly how I did it. So uh, when you were when you were in school, did you take a lot of English classes and and try to become a writer then or was no. that something you picked up later? <laughs> I actually hated school. Um, it wasn't <laughs> my thing did. at all. Yeah, I'm more of a hands-on guy. So for me, the school thing was kind of like I couldn't wait to get out and get into the real world and get my hands dirty. And, uh, you know, getting into writing, I guess my dad's a writer, so I kind of had an act for it just because of him. Um, but it wasn't until I really saw it as a tangible dream job that I focused my efforts in writing. And I mean, I was in you know, all the lower English classes in high school, I wasn't gearing myself up for college and, and becoming a writer. I had no concept for that actually until I learned about the job at four wheeler was a possibility. And at the time when they hired me, it was, I got really lucky because they, they had to fill the spot and uh, they were going to lose it if they didn't. And there was very few people rooting for that spot. Um, I was one of two basically that applied for it. And then they, they hired me. Excellent. And, uh, yeah, it was an amazing step up without a degree. And, and my deal with my boss at the time was actually to continue going to school for a journalism degree, which I continued down in Glendale uh, at the community college. Well, my first year at Four Wheeler, I did. Excellent. So do you, we'll just jump right into this. I We tell a lot of our freelancers and, you know, people that write for us for the first time, we give a lot of people that that first time exposure, you know, they, uh, mm -hmm. with our four low magazine, we just, mm -hmm. they go, how do you want it written? And I, and Shelly is the one that came up with this. Cause she does a lot of writing. She goes, tell your story. 
Mm-hmm. You know, she goes, I don't care how, how grammar, you know, how your grammar is and your punctuation. She goes, I'll clean that up. You just tell your story in your words. Mm-hmm. And, uh, it seems to have been working is what do you, what do you, how's your, you know, what do you do when you were writing? Well, for me, I don't know. It's a very specific time of the day for me when I, when I, my creative juices are really flowing. And I can actually, uh, you know, make make an article come together quickly, and that's usually in the morning when I first get up. Okay. Um, so that's when I generally do write. Now, at my current job, I'm writing a story for every single repair that we do. On, you know, we do general automotive repair along with custom four by four buildups. And when I'm doing general automotive repair, you know, every every customer has a concern that we're there to solve. So there's a story to every single repair, right? A beginning, middle, and an end. So I'm constantly telling stories, though brief, uh, every day throughout my job. And um, I'll say this: when I have to write an in-depth, you know, tech story or something, it, it's I work on it for probably four or five days in the morning. I'll take you know little snips at it in my free time. And uh, it'll all come together by the end, but it's really not my, I don't, I have to force myself to sit down and write an article. It's not something that I naturally want to do. Right. Um, it's just, I don't gravitate to using words. I'm much more of a physical person. So it's, it's definitely something I've, you know, learned the craft over the years and uh, kind of tuned my skills towards it, which really makes me a better guy at what I do as a service writer every day. Um, as far as, you know, explaining technical details to a customer. And that's, I think that's important. I, you know, I was in automotive repair for years as, uh, with Sears and some other, um, smaller shops, um, up to, to management, whereas training guys how to service right. And, you know, it was making sure that they, they, they used the correct vernacular and and described what was happening and not try to scare the customer. You mm-hmm. know, it's like back in the day, Sears got in a lot of trouble for that. You know, oh my God, you're going to die if you don't, you know, change your struts. You know, well, yeah. that, <laughs> that's not necessarily true. So, you know, it's uh, it was more about being completely honest with the customer um, than it was, you know, the hard sell. And yeah. I always appreciate that when I run across that. Yeah, it's a difficult thing because the average consumer out there really doesn't know much about cars. And they come in with a problem and they're throwing everything on the line that they hope that you're an honest shop to work with and, and you know, do things right along the way. And uh, I'm really, really fortunate to work with Toby, who has an amazing reputation in our area and, you know, is basically poised for success because of word of mouth. So it makes my job a little easier, but don't get me wrong, it's... It's a lot. I mean, I, I kind of pride myself in having the knack to bring the customer along for the ride and educate them about their problem if they so choose to know. Not every customer is that customer, but from the you know customer service standpoint, I'm all about helping someone figure out and understand what the nature of their problem is, and then you know lead them to the solution. Excellent. It's uh, it's a lot of fun to me. So when you when you stepped into four wheeler. What was, do you remember what your first, your first article got printed? Yeah. So immediately I was under the, the management of John Thompson and, uh, he, the first thing he did was he gave me the RPM news column of four wheeler. And then instantly I had to immerse myself in, you know, press releases and what's going on in the industry. What's the buzz and, uh, new vehicles to, you know, things that are going on, uh, from like trail use and, um, you know, just this industry wide, what's the news of the industry? You know, that was my beat at the first. So I remember doing a lot of studying and trying to, you know, I'm trying to make my craft as good as I could at that time, which I didn't know a whole lot. So I was learning a lot from my colleagues. Luckily at that time, we were all in one building downtown in LA. Well, not downtown, but on Wilshire Boulevard. A lot of these guys, uh, you know, kind of were friends and, and we'd all go to lunch and stuff. And I, I got to learn a lot from the Fred Williams, the David Kennedys and John Kappas of the world uh, early on uh, working at four wheeler that luckily helped propel me to, you know, be successful at it. What was, what was one of those early, awe moments for you with the magazine 
where you went, not besides getting the job. Yeah, I guess it was getting the free reign. Like, I mean, one thing, you know, getting your office in a high rise without a college degree and you can look out the window and see the Hollywood sign, you feel pretty special. And then the realization of, well, there's, you know, any on any given month, there's 300 to 500,000 readers at that time that were basically reading four wheeler magazine regularly. Uh, You know, that's a huge uh, projection, right? You're, You're capturing a huge audience. So, for someone with very little experience at it, it was kind of a big deal. And uh, I took it pretty serious. I mean, I was working probably 13, 14 hours a day, mainly because I didn't like having to deal with L.A. traffic getting home. Uh, so I just put it in my life into that job. And uh, you know, I'd moved down there kind of on a whim, hoping I'd get the job, and I ended up getting it. And so I was doing everything in my power to keep it. And uh it was definitely challenging. That first three years was a lot of both political negotiating and uh, just picking the right things to get myself involved in. Uh, it took me a long time to kind of fit in. But once I did, I think really the real, the reality was when they kind of bestowed me with a buildup of my own to do. Right. I, I remember it was Craig Peroni was in charge of the Teal J a 97 Jeep Wrangler project buildup that four wheeler had gotten. It was a dollar vehicle from Chrysler and, you know, the magazine did a, a mile up on it. And, uh, I was reading that my senior year in high school. So I knew all about the 97 Teal J Jeep, you know, and, and when they handed me the keys to it and said, here, we want you to do part two. That was kind of the pinch me moment when I went, wow, this is real. I'm really living my dream here. <laughs> And besides going, you know, to all the cool rock crawling events. And I mean, I, I got to do some amazing things that first year, luckily, uh, that really propelled my career. Um, you know, going down to Baja and, and getting my feet wet down there uh, was kind of the beginning. Uh, and then, you know, through the process, uh, meeting all the people that run all the businesses that make it all happen that's that's really where you start to grow the connections and networking ability of that career field and man i didn't i didn't i was pretty aggressive in in networking and getting myself out there and you know they basically pay for your travel right so i was traveling 80 to 90 percent of the time and i mean while i had a, a room i was renting in a house i was never ever there uh whether i was moving on you know events for the magazine or going to take tours of factories to learn how things were made. I mean, just, there was always some opportunity coming along and more so than you could do with your. So it was a amazing uh, place to start out as a, you know, as far in this industry, you have the keys to pretty much any company that you want. You can get in and learn anything you want. And, and I did, I, I took advantage of it full wholeheartedly. Do you, um, do you, what was what was kind of the uh, the favorite spot that you got a chance to go to and and either write about or experience? Well, so I, I luckily got going down in Baja, right, and that to me is the holy grail of off road. Really, it's right. uh, it's kind of the wild west, right, and anything goes, and it's there's a level of of danger that comes with it. So you know, if you're a thrill seeker, there's that. It offers you and I don't know going down to San Felipe and chasing the, the 250 that's one of my favorite pastimes um doing the peninsula runs anything in a, a higher-end race vehicle down there uh was right up my alley and I got to do a lot of that fortunately um it's it's got to be Baja I would say I mean I've, I've I was doing Rubicon and, and Moab and all that on my own but really the, the high-end desert racing stuff is what the what really the the keys unlocked for me that I probably wouldn't have gone there otherwise. Were you able to attach yourself to a team when you went down there, or were you just kind of you know hovering, or you know what was the modus operandi when you were down there? Well, it starts with you know what makes sense for our readership. And for us, you know, really the, the trophy trucks were two-wheel drive vehicles. They don't even get coverage in four-wheelers in the section. But so we kind of had to focus on four-wheel drive, four-wheel drive capable vehicles. So for me, it was 
stock full because really the, the higher end trucks didn't have all wheel drive yet. At least, you know, there wasn't, it wasn't well figured out. So there wasn't a lot of guys doing it. So for me, it was stock full and, or, you know, seven or there's a few guys uh, that I could race with like, you know, early on Donahoe and the FJ cruiser that they um, campaigned. I got to do some racing in that. Um, Pank Croker and his, his Dodge Ram Cummins. That was kind of my very first race. Well, we did the 500 in that one. And, uh, and then the thousand thereafter. And we were actually the first Cummins powered diesel vehicle to ever cross the finish line in Baja. It's like, uh, not to say we, we came in first, but we did cross the finish line, which was a big deal for a stock full truck with that heavy of a, an engine. <laughs> and right. then, now were um, you, were you in the truck? Did you get to, to navigate? Yeah. Or? Oh yeah. Excellent. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, in fact, I did the whole race, uh, start to finish. Uh, we was, I was in the truck for, 27 and a half hours um the first time i did the thousand and uh it was a three-seater uh i was in the third seat for part of it and then navigating for the second half and uh it was it was the beginning of my racing experience so i was learning a lot and at the time it was an amazing opportunity that you know doesn't come along very easily this is you know someone who was trying to prove his suspension right they wanted to stamp Baja proven on their basically bolt-on lift kits uh, for these trucks and uh, going down there and doing that and, and, you know, me publishing stuff about it was kind of the key to his success of his product. You know, he wanted to have that uh, approval rating of a, a go fast product right. for the average consumer to bolt on in their driveway. And so that was a unique opportunity. And of course I helped him develop the, the program with sponsorships and stuff and that led on to other opportunities and i i raced with kent many other times down the road from that and uh then i kind of decided that you know i kind of played out that that uh stock full category or segment uh, the four-wheeler magazine readers knew about it and so i was kind of looking elsewhere for other opportunities and i did get embedded a couple times with a lot of uh, bigger higher level teams um and you know that was amazing but uh yeah looking back i guess baja would be the one thing that was the biggest takeaway that was just <laughs> amazing about that right i've never i've never been in a race car in baja um mm-hmm. done a lot of pre-running and crewed teams and you know been at the pits and then raced to the next pit all that kind of stuff or made our way to the next pit i don't want to say race because the teams that i went with had had strict rules on how fast we were allowed to go on the highways down there. Um, mm-hmm. But I I wanted to get into a car, and then I didn't want to get into a car. You know what I mean? Um, yeah. You know, I didn't want to be the guy that screwed up the race. So mm-hmm. it was always one of those things where it was like, no, I'll stick on the outside. And, you know, one one day I'd hope to, to race myself, but I'm, I, I think those days are behind me. I had a, a one opportunity – um, Dave Cole asked me to help with his, uh, oh, yeah. when he went down there and raced that, that 4,400 car the first mm-hmm. time. And I was like, nope, 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 not getting in the car. Sorry. I'll be part of the pit crew. <laughs> yeah. So I don't know that, I mean, I, I had a couple opportunities to drive and I know I like to think I'm a good driver, but when you ride with a true professional race car driver, like I got to, you realize you think you're a good driver. Right. <laughs> and so you're, you're, you know, really going fast with a real driver. It's, you don't really know what you're doing out there. It's, there's a huge difference in level of capability. Absolutely. A real I agree. Serious driver. I agree. Everybody, th- you know, the nice thing about, about racing though, and, and going fast and why more people like to go fast than say technical crawling, I believe is that no matter how fast you are, you can be the slowest guy on the course but you're going as fast as you can. That's exhilarating. Yeah. I mean, put it this way. There is not a more dynamic form of motorsport period. I don't care what you try to put yourself against. A trophy truck is the pinnacle of dynamic off-road or just motorsport racing in general. I don't, I don't see short of maybe, you know, like what Jesse Combs was doing in those high speed runs. I, I can't see how there would be much more dynamic 
I mean, you're, you're in the ground, you're, you're off the ground more than you're on the ground in a trophy right. truck, Yep. you know, and, and you've got all these variables that just don't exist in other formats of racing. So it's just a whole different level of engagement. And the guys that, that solo, you know, I remember when you're BJ Baldwin solo, you know, all the way from, you know, Ensenada to La Paz, that was a year, like, I think he, he drove through someone's canopy or tent or something trying to catch up to someone else and man, you look at that level of driving for that distance and that's that's the ultimate in my opinion that you might as well be an astronaut at that point absolutely it's it's pretty incredible what's the uh what are some of the things that happened down in mexico that that will always stick with you memory wise Well, you know, there's lots and lots of racing experiences that were pretty unparalleled, you know, pulling people out. When you, you come up to something in a silk bed in a four-wheel drive diesel truck, it's like you are there saving grace, right? And you, you can't <laughs> just keep going. You got to get out and help them. And I was after those stories, too, to do that. So it was you know, less serious for us uh, when we were in the lead so we could actually do that. We could stop and pull people out of the mud. And I remember – there was a, a guy in a, this was like a, I want to say a early Bronco, but it was, you know, pretty set up Baja race car. And uh, I think his four wheel drive hadn't been working because he was a four wheel drive Bronco and we, we pulled him out of a bad mud hole. And this is in the Southern half of Baja. Uh, you know, it, it was probably 25 hours into the race. So, you know, these guys were just wiped out and, and we were there saving grace and th- those kinds of, experiences were really the the ones that I look back on fond fond of you know and uh what was the what was the like scariest or mm. the most nerve-wracking so you know how you you push so hard when you're you're sleepy and you're driving those those situations I had a couple there where I should have called it and not been in the driver's seat because I was just too tired to continue and, uh, you know, you, you're hitting the shoulder with the tires and, and people in your truck are like, okay, time to, time to, for you to sleep. You know, the, those are the, when you realize, holy shit, I could have just ran us off the road and killed everybody in the truck. You know, those are the, the low points where you, you realize you just, you know, you're a human and you've got to rest. But, but getting to that stage without knowing it, that's the scary part of Baja when you're chasing. I, I Cause agree. those roads are far more dangerous than being on the race course. Yeah, we were, Shelly and I were, it was a uh, thousand. We were going into La Paz. It was nighttime. I'd been up for like 48 hours at that point, 47 hours. Mm-hmm. I was convinced I was on a really twisty road and I had to slow down to like 25 to keep the car on the road. Both of us felt like the road was really twisty and we were on a cliff. Two days later, when we left La Paz and started driving home on the same road, there wasn't mm-hmm. a turn on that road. <laughs> wow. <laughs> and I couldn't understand why people were honking at me and blowing by me. And it was like, you know, and then, then I realized that was the one time I realized, man, I, I cannot push that many hours without sleep. Yeah. It was 47, 48 hours at that point. Cause I think we finished the car got there just after we did. And we got, we got to La Paz at like 49 and I was like, okay, we're never doing that again. Yeah. That was like the whole reason that Bob published that whole what about you thing, you know? It's, yes. It's, I remember one year there was like six chase trucks that got in head-on collisions. And, man, it really made you realize, holy cow, what we're doing is so far more dangerous in these chase trucks than what these guys are doing on the race course with our safety gear. Yeah, I've had chase trucks that I remember one was a, I won't even mention the guy's name, but they were a one car and we were following the trophy truck and we were, the, the, our trophy truck was in the the top four and Mm -hmm. that one car, there was, they, they were not in the mix, but the guy, this guy pulling this double car trailer with, uh, you know, his big dually four wheel drive pickup and two other Mm -hmm. guys in front of him with all their lights on would smoke by us, and he didn't realize that his trailer was so long as three times that he passed me, he almost put me over the, off the road because of his trailer. Yeah. So every time I'd see those guys coming, after that, I just 
I started pulling over and letting him go. And then we'd get to our pit and then our, you know, the truck would go by and then I'd jump back up on the road. And then the next thing I know, these guys are passing me again. And I'm just thinking, these guys are going to die or kill somebody. Mm-hmm. You know, I was so mad after that race. I went looking for him, but it was, uh, I was told, uh, you know, I was sitting on the guy's trailer at the next race and the team that I was with, it was Roger Norman at that race. And he comes up mm-hmm. and he goes, Rich, what are you doing? And I said, I'm sitting here waiting for this driver of this truck and trailer. And he goes, why? And I said, well, this is what happened at the last race. And he goes, do you realize that it's probably not even the same guy riding, driving that truck and trailer? And I said, well, he's going to take one for the team. Because <laughs> I was so mad about almost yeah. you know getting run off the road. And so he put his arm out, grabbed my collar and said, come on, let's go to breakfast. But I was sitting there Mm -hmm. in the parking lot waiting for that guy. (laughs) Yeah, tune him up. Yeah. I was mad. You know, I mean, I felt like he almost tried to kill me and didn't give a shit, you know? So, yeah, Yeah, those are the kind of things that, that environment down there kind of breeds that behavior, unfortunately. Um, and you got to keep your guys reeled in. If you've got a, a serious team effort, you know, you, you got you to have meetings with your guys and explain, hey, this is the front we want to put on. We don't want people coming home in coffins. You know, we need to all adhere to these policies and rules. That was one thing nice about going down there with Kent Croker and his team. He's military, or was, you know. Right. He was a Marine. And so everything was a battle plan. Everyone gets a published copy of the battle plan, which had all the comm numbers. You know, everything was well figured out when you went down there with those guys. And, I kind of learned that early on, luckily, and that's what I tried to align myself with anytime I went down there. Uh, there were definitely times when, you know, I got to see the other side of the equation where everything's just a shit show. But, man, when you get the taste of the good, well-organized efforts, it, it's a well-oiled machine, you know, and there's so many of them that aren't. And those are the ones, usually the guys are taking humongous risks. Yes. Yeah. And, uh, it the teams that have that are large enough to have enough pit support to where the guy, same guys you know six guys don't have to be at every single pit stop makes yeah. a huge difference. Big you know, time. I mean, when we were when I was running with with Pistol, it was you know we were one of those teams that you know we could do every other pit stop, so we you know like leapfrog. Um, mm-hmm. and that sometimes was, you know, but he was the one that said, you know, nobody drives over the speed limit ever, mm-hmm. you know, and, uh, you know, we, we tried to adhere to that because we'd be in groups too, you know, two, three cars to, you know, trucks together. But, uh, yeah. you know, with Roger Norman, now there's a different story, you know, that there's, you know, he's got yeah. pit support lined out, you know, you, nobody has to race to the next Next, you know, no leapfrogging, anything like that. And uh, mm-hmm. it, he he was, that, that was a class act. So, yeah. writing, you uh, you got to go do some things in other countries too, correct? Yeah, yeah. I did, uh, let's see, Dakar Rally. Went down there to South America a couple times to see that. Uh, went to South Korea for uh, a look at how tires are made. But, um, that was a pretty cool, cool whirlwind of a trip. When I got to sit in first class with Rick Payway the whole way, that was fun. <laughs> was he wearing shoes or sandals? He was. He was in sandals. <laughs> it was pretty cool. <laughs> yeah. And uh, let's see, what other? I, I did some stuff in Canada. Um, didn't make it over to Europe at all with four wheeler anyway. Um, but I'd done a fair bit of travel before that. So, you know, I've seen, I've gotten to see a lot of the world already before I was working at Four Wheeler. Um, so I, I, I really was gearing myself towards the opportunities that I couldn't get otherwise. Right. You know, getting to go inside a facility and see how Bilstein shocks are made, things like that. that those are the, the things that really I was attracted to. Uh, having a mechanical mind, you know, was, uh, wanting to understand the things that you can't see otherwise. Uh, and so I took advantage of that and got to go a fair bit of places that, you know, the average person would never get eyes on. So when you went to South Korea, what, what tire company was that? Yeah. Uh, Tankook. 
Okay, Hankook. Okay. Yeah. Hankook, and uh, that was actually a pretty eye-opening deal. I mean, I, they were pushing the green tire thing at that point, so they were, you know, showing all the press. Here's how we take, I don't know, I think it was palm oil to make tires. And, you know, they took us into their, their laboratories where they do the R&D, and that's, like, usually no one ever sees that stuff. So it was pretty cool. And uh, we actually got a, a 15-minute Q&A session with the president of the company at the time, which was a big deal. Uh, and, of course, you know, you're in downtown Seoul, South Korea, so you're you're in a, a hustling and bustling place. And, of course, they, they wine and dine you as a, as a editor, right, because they want you to have a good experience. And uh, it was just neat seeing the difference in how things are done over there versus here, uh, both in, you know, automotive stuff and just life in general. It was cool. Uh, they took us into the demilitarized zone underneath uh, North Korea. We got to go in the tunnels that actually extend under North Korea. So I, I get to say I, I've actually been in North Korea. <laughs> nice. But um, Don't want to go back? I think the South America stuff was really where I got the most out of it. Like going down to Chile and watching the, the Dakar rally come through, that was mind-blowing. Um how many how many people go to Dakar, right? And how many people get a front row seat? It's just a, a really cool experience. Were you embedded with a team at that point? No. So the there was a little four wheel drive club in the, the northern Atacama Desert, uh, the northern part of Chile, uh, that reached out to me, and they basically were interested in having an American magazine come cover it. Um, so I responded, they paid my plane ticket down there and, and put me up in a hotel and took me out with a four wheel drive club. And basically they knew all the spots that the race was going to be coming through. And we got to see some of the best action in the sand dunes, uh, in the Atacama desert right up front. And, uh, I was the only American that was doing daily updates on the four wheeler website at that point, uh, showing the race team. You know, the, the American teams that were racing at the time were what we were there kind of following. But uh, just just seeing how that's done, like how many people have been to the bivouac site of the car right? and seen that, right? You, not anybody can just get in there. You got to be part of a race team. So if you're not a, me- a media guy, you know, there's not really a way to get in there unless you're racing. And so that was a pretty cool. I remember walking through the bivouac in this is Copiapo, Chile area. Uh, and just at night, you know, they have all those inflated lights that are up high and glowing down on the trucks and all the mechanics are doing work on the trucks. And I was just looking around going, man, this is like its own city. It's just super passionate and, and focused on their efforts. And here I am, just some guy off the street that, that has nothing to do with this, getting to come in here and, and like I'm, you know, involved, uh, see it all firsthand. That was pretty cool. I would imagine that would have been, I mean, and then the guys from that, that club from Chile, when you get, you know, they're tickled pink, you know, that you're there um, and they get to share that with you. Yeah. And then I, I returned the favor. I invited the guy that hosted me, uh, Patricio Rios. Uh, I invited him up to America and he came up and did the Baja 1000 with me uh, in a, stock full effort that uh, I was doing at the time in a Nissan Titan. Uh, and, you know, it was really cool because they, they came up, they went to the Baja 500 and then we didn't finish the Baja 500, unfortunately, but we made it back up to uh, Hollister Hills for top truck challenge. And he got to experience top truck challenge. So like he took me to his world and showed me their cool four by four scene. And I did the same thing for him up here. And, uh, you know, we even got in an, an evening out at uh, Watsonville Speedway. You got to see how roundy round racing goes on in America, which was kind of a, a, a neat little bonus for him. But it was uh, a nice little pick for that. And then he's invited me back several times, but I just haven't been able to make it happen. And then they've moved to car, so there isn't really a, a go down there reason otherwise. Right. So the uh, you'd mentioned that you had traveled, done some extensive traveling before traveling for the magazine. Um, how did that yeah. come about? Was that with your dad and his music? Yeah. So my dad's music took him down to South America quite often, uh, in the country of Paraguay. He's, he's the foremost authority in their 
musical equivalent to like Elvis, right? They, the, the guy that's on their $50 bill was their musical claim to fay, flame, fame. <laughs> and my dad was the world authority on that guy. So, wow. okay. yeah, he got, you know, lots of opportunities to go down there and play concerts and, and do master classes and things like that. So he was actually living in Costa Rica, my senior year of high school. And I, I moved or went down there for two weeks and got to see the whole Costa Rica thing. Um, then my dad moved to Puerto Rico, was there for a couple of years. So I got to go visit him in Puerto Rico a couple of times. Uh, then he moved to Paraguay and I, I went down there for the Dakar rally and then went over to Paraguay and got to do some wheeling with an ARB uh, dealer down in Paraguay. It was pretty cool. That's awesome. Um, but yeah, I've been to Europe before that, you know, before high school, uh, I traveled a bit. I grew up in Hawaii, of course, but um, I'd went down to Costa Rica before I graduated high school. I'd been to Canada. Um, but then when I graduated, I went, you know, for three weeks, uh, Euro rail backpacking hostels, the whole deal in Europe, which was really neat. And I would definitely recommend that to any youngster that doesn't know what they want to do yet in life. Cause that's where you form bonds and figure out what, what the world's really about, you know, when you're right. traveling in another land where you don't speak the language and have no assets, no resources at all, but what's on your back. Uh, that's a, that's a pretty cool way to learn what the world's about. I didn't get a chance to do that, but I, I've, We've done a lot of traveling in the last 12, 13, 14 years, and I I appreciate it because my thing is, is when we travel, I try to be one with the the country, mm-hmm. not, you know, I, I don't, even when we vacation, um, you know, I, I don't go to Cancun, you know, mm-hmm. I don't, I mean, we, we go to like Capos in in Costa Rica. Um you yeah, know, we get, go, get off the go, beaten trail. Yeah, we get off the beaten trail. We we rented a uh, a Land Rover one ten in Australia and did, you know, eighteen days driving through the, the bush and down the coastline. You know, we didn't mm-hmm. get into the outback. I mean I next time I go to Australia it's gonna be for like six months. But yeah. you know, it was uh you know it, it's immerse yourself in with the with the country to really learn what it's like. Mm-hmm. You know, I try to do that yeah. even you know with the wheeling. Every place that we've gone, we've had a chance to go wheeling. Um, it, on the Big Island of Hawaii, I hooked up with the the Big Island Jeep Club, and uh, mm-hmm. I I wanted to rent a Jeep so we could get around, and there was no Jeep rentals available, and so I called uh, one of the president of the Big Island Jeep Club. And said, "Hey, you know, this is who I am. You know, I'm I'm coming into town. There's going to be four of us. Can you set us up with a, you know, you guys doing any trail rides? You know, during this time frame." Mm-hmm. And they took us out like four times. Nice, you know. So it was pretty cool, and, and and get to wheel with those with the the locals, and did the same thing in Costa Rica. Um, you know, driving through the rainforests and through the creek, you know, the river beds and all that kind of stuff. That's, mm-hmm. uh, you know, high mountain stuff and everything. That was, it's really a trip doing all that kind of stuff with, uh, with the locals that know, you know, the good places to eat, you know, the good terrain, mm-hmm. the good, the good sightseeing, the stuff that you, you'll never see in the brochures. Yeah. Yeah. I'm with you on that. Uh, my dad living there when I visited, we luckily had that, you know, not the touristy version of it. We, we were in the northern part of Costa Rica and Guanacaste and like the t- most touristy thing we did was we went out to the beach and got to take one of those tours where you get to watch the turtles lay their eggs with the, you know, under the red light on the beach. That was like the most touristy thing we did while I was in Costa Rica. So I'm right there with you. It's, <laughs> it's so much better when you're not on a resort playing the, the normal things that tourists do. Correct. I'm, I'm yeah. completely in agreement. You want to immerse yourself in the, the culture, you get off the beaten path and meet some locals. That's really the best way to do it. Yep. So, right. Uh, let's see. We've we've touched on your traveling. Um, we've touched on four wheeler. The there's got to be more to four wheeler. What was it? What was it like working with Payway on a trip like that? Rick and I. I've been trying to get Rick on here, and he keeps. I just can never connect with him just like I did with you over the last month, yeah. you know, yeah. um, 
But Rick is, I mean, whenever we see Rick, Rick, you know, first thing he does is he like nods at me and he goes, gives my wife's a hug, you know? And I'm like, mm-hmm. okay, wait, I got to wait five minutes till he'll say something to me. But, you know, he, uh, he's, he is quite the character, loves sitting down, you know, having dinner with him or something like that. But, uh, what's he like to travel with? Well, you know, to me, he was a superior, so I got to look at it from that set of eyes, right? That, that, you know, here's this guy much higher up the ladder than I am. So I got to be on my best behavior when I'm traveling with him, but he's a down to earth guy. I mean, I remember at the time we were really concerned about, uh, uh, layoffs and everyone was worried about their job and having lots of conversations about how we can all maintain our jobs with pay cuts and that sort of thing. I remember that that was the discussion that kind of, you know, took us <laughs> on that trip. But um, uh, Rick's a really good dude. He's, he is uh, full of amazing stories uh, of collecting Jeeps and driving them back, you know, not knowing anything about them and, and just things like that. He's a really fun person to be around, uh, just full of interesting topics to talk about and world experiences surrounding them, you know? Yeah. That's why I want to get him on here. Cause I, I know we'll probably end up talking like with Bob Bauer, Baja Bob, we talked for like six hours and I cut it down to two, two hour segments. But I mean, we yeah. e- easily could have done six hours of, of conversations with, with just Bob. And I would imagine it's going to be that way with Rick too. Just, you yeah. know, he's done it, done all of it. Yeah. He really is a legend in this game. I mean, he's what we all looked up to. Exactly. Yeah. So what, uh, you're working now with Lavender. Um, well, let's talk about the, the bad, the badass beadlock thing. Yeah. So that was something that kind of came out of the four wheeler thing for me. And, and, uh, essentially, you know, I was in top truck challenge as a co-driver before I got the job at four wheeler. And that was a complete, you know, happening that was unplanned and and i was working for this was right after i got out of high school since 99 i believe or 2001 uh and i went to i I had a job i was working for (laughs) accessories plus uh was like kind of a full parts type of store in the bay area okay and competitor full parts and uh the day i started on with them they took us all in the office and said, okay, uh, we want you to know that we just filed bankruptcy today and, and nobody here is uh, going to be able to actually sell any parts to the customers that come in and buy these parts. <laughs> so I knew instantly, well, this is not a long-term job. I got to find something different. <laughs> and I wasn't taking it super serious as such. Uh, so, you know, I'm looking at the internet for other ways to do what I wanted to do. And luckily that day just so happened that Wheeler Magazine had started live coverage begins tomorrow of top truck challenge so i promptly quit the job and drove down to hollister hills and hid my truck basically and went in there and became part of top truck challenge by force basically um <laughs> and in doing so I met kevin kalin kevin kalin needed a co-driver and uh his co-driver had his his mom or someone had passed or gotten cancer and was not doing well, and so they couldn't had to bail out last minute. So he came out here alone from South Carolina with no spotter. And uh, you know, for him, I was a dream come true. Some guy that's local that knows the train, who's into rock crawling. You know, he was much more of a mud kind of guy. So for him to find me and me get on his team, and then we basically make it to third place in the event because of our collaborating efforts. Uh, was a pretty special story and of course you know the editorial team at that time glommed onto it and made a big deal of that in the magazine and uh, a friendship formed right and, and Kevin, he was a uh, state trooper in south carolina but he had seen a lot of carnage from uh, rollover accidents in, involving buses and he was trying to figure out a better way to do a wheel that where a bus tire would not de-bead and cause the bus to roll over, you know, and basically peeling people off the pavement, you, you start thinking of other ways that the bus can do the same thing. And he figured out the bad beadlock through that effort. And then basically us being into off-roading, we said, well, let's prove it. And off-road if off-road could use a different type of beadlock when it's DOT legal. And, uh, 
So we basically attacked the off-road as a segment to bring that technology into the fray and make people aware of it so that we could then make that technology available for other vehicles like buses and over-the-road trucks. And uh, in doing it, uh, I learned a ton, right? I didn't know crap about wheels and became the marketing director for Bad Wheels. And so I had to learn everything I could. And uh, it's funny, Kevin's actually calling me right now. It's funny. Thing. Oh, really? But uh, yeah. <laughs> but um, yeah, we never we never did get it to that, uh, you know, over the road truck demographic that we wanted to. Um, and, and Kevin's health started sliding and he was building every single wheel by hand himself. Oh, he wow. got raw castings from American Eagle. You know, a whole container of them would show up at his house and he would sit there and he's got a bad back. He's had multiple back surgeries and stuff. So for him, it was very, very hard to do the physical assembly of each wheel. And that that's where we were basically stopped and he didn't have the money to spool it up as a big company. And, you know, it was just a really hard thing for him. So we decided what was best was to sell it to someone who was far more capable than us. And he sold the the patent, the idea, everything to these, this new group in Colorado. And unfortunately, right after that, bad wheels uh, had to cease because American Eagle shut down the facility that manufactured the, the cast wheel for us. So it wasn't really anything we could do about it. We'd already sold the company to these new guys and uh, I was supposed to go on with them kind of as a part-timer doing marketing for them, but it all came crashing down when American Eagle pulled the plug. And they couldn't find anyone else in the U.S. to build them. And that was our whole premise was American made. So we weren't going to look out, you know, going to Taiwan or China for castings. So it just kind of fizzled. The yeah. idea is still out there and it's still a great idea and it, it works really well. And uh, I think we had a really special product. And I think there's still a lot of room for, uh, you know, innovative wheel products in the industry. And someday I'm hoping someone will pick that back up and run with it. And that was, I know it's on my agenda if I ever win the lottery or something. Is that is that like a a uh, that was like an internal beadlock? Yeah, it was pretty ingenious. So what he did was he redesigned the wheel to have a deeper drop center, which gave you the ability to change uh, the orientation of the tire when you're physically mounting the internal locking elements. You needed room to get your hand in there, which was the hard part to figure out. And he figured out by making the cavity of the wheel a different shape that when you're, you know, you set the beads of the tire with our system, then you break down the front bead. So you have a rear bead that's set, but you're working from the front part of the wheel. And because of the deep drop center, you can twist the carcass of the tire on the wheel to get room to get your hand in there to physically assemble the bead lock product. So that was kind of the whole secret to it. Okay. And uh, it was very successful. I mean, our goal was to build the most robust cast aluminum wheel possible. And it was heavy, but it was very, very strong. And we had some really innovative features that you could add on to it. And it was well-received. I mean, we won a, a global media award the first time we showed it at, at SEMA. And, uh, you know, Sales-wise, we were doing what we could, but we were limited by how much Kevin could physically build in his shipping container each day. And uh, so it wasn't going to be a long-term thing. For me, it was always, a well, maybe someone will buy it and, and I'll get brought on. And that was all looking real good, but then it fizzled. So it was unfortunate, but still a great product. I've still got three sets of them, and uh, I'm definitely planning to use them. Excellent. Excellent. And then... Uh... After that, what did you uh, what you do when that is that when you went back to you went to to Toby's? So for a while there, I actually worked uh, for a company in the Morgan Hill area called Kodiak Industries, and uh, they did dual battery management systems, and they were like the West Coast dealer for Premier Power Welder and Pull Pal, and. Uh, it just so happened I lived pretty close to them and I knew them from doing stuff in the magazine and mainly off-road expo. He always had a booth there. Uh, so I, I really wanted to learn the art of automotive wiring, you know, big cable, you know, all two gauge and up stuff. 
to do it properly because I had been accused at one point of wiring a vehicle to the point that it, sh- it would have burned down. <laughs> so I learned like, okay, I don't want to have that reputation of, of doing crappy wiring jobs. So I'm going to learn the art of this. And and I did. And that, that was really a cool, you know, kind of like going back and learning a trade, um, you know, working with battery cables. You don't think of it as that, but when you get good at it, it's it's just another trade. Really, it's large cable electronic work. Uh, and there's lots of good reason to know that in the automotive space I'm in now. I mean, all my guys do exactly the same thing I learned when I was working for Kodiak Industries. And uh, I'd say that it's probably one of our top selling things we do at, at Lavender Brothers. Excellent. I, I know that I have a reputation out there. I don't like to lift the hood of my Cherokee um, mm-hmm. because everybody looks at it and goes, oh, my God, how have you not burned this thing down yet? You know, mm-hmm. And uh, it's, it's tried on numerous occasions, but uh, I've always gotten the wires pulled mm-hmm. before total meltdown. <laughs> nice. One time we parked in uh, – we were in West Virginia, and we parked for the night. And the next morning I get up and we're walking to the Jeep, and I'm like, why is the inside of the Jeep all foggy? And oh. it was smoke. The wires. Wow, did it self extinguish? No, it was, it had, it had probably started 15, 20 minutes before we walked out. So oh instantly I, I opened the door, popped the hood, um, was able to get the, uh, the ground disconnected. And then I mm-hmm. traced back to where the smoke was coming from. You know, I let all the smoke out from under the dash. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, it was just one of those, you know, oh, you drill a hole here, run some wires through it and, uh, you know, forget about it. And, uh, yep. yeah, <laughs> the car didn't forget about it, <laughs> but, uh, one of these days I'm going to go through there and uh, do it right. But, um, yeah, it's, it's pretty gnarly looking. I'm not a, I'm not the wiring guy. And every time I get something from somebody or pick something up and Shelly goes, do you have to, you're going to put that in yourself? I'm like, yeah, sure, I can do that. And, you know, here on the out in a park because, you know, we're getting ready to do an event and it's been shipped to me. And I'm, she goes, well, why don't you wait until one of the teams get here and have them do it for you? And I'm like, come on, babe, I can hook a couple of wires up. <laughs> yeah, but she, she was there that time. I, we almost burnt the car down. Wow. So she doesn't trust my wiring. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, wiring is definitely one of those things, man, once you get the knack for it. Like when you see a, a, a beautifully wired, you know, backside of a panel or something like that, you, you really can appreciate the time and effort that goes into doing those systems right. Absolutely, it's a, it's I agree one hundred percent. So then, from from there, it went to Toby's. Then, or was there yeah, another stop? Yeah, yeah. So, nope, nope. I went from Kodiak. Uh, did Top Trek Challenge that year, and then after Top Trek Challenge, went to work for Toby. And uh, yeah, the rest is history with Toby. I've been you know, his main cornerstone of his business for the last 11 years. And then we've since opened two additional shops and uh, looking to do a fourth at some point in, wow. the, in the coming years. But yeah, it's, it's been a great uh, run with Toby. Uh, I feel like I aligned myself with the right person in life that, that really had his shit together, so to speak, and, and could actually, you know, transition from fabricator to, Really, you can't make a lot of money in Monterey off of being a, a race car fabricator to, you know, business owner with, you know, three locations. Um, we're really good. We're kicking butt. Yeah, that's really good. And opening a fourth. Man, most people can't even find enough people to man one shop for them. That is our biggest trouble, too, is, is finding people. I mean, I'm sure everybody's in the same boat. It's Nobody wants to work anymore. It's, it's really a shame. Yeah, and the younger generation doesn't have the... Uh doesn't have the appreciation for vehicles. Yeah. I mean, there are key guys that you can find, but then there's always a something about them, right? Like I I had to fire a guy last week that he walked like a sloth. I mean, literally like everywhere he went, he just kind of shuffled around and didn't even, you know, just, just wasn't the kind of guy you want to represent your company. They, They put on a great face up front when you're interviewing them and then you get them in for a week and it's like, are you kidding me? This is this is what you're about, man. <laughs> it's like, man, what is wrong with the youth today? Exactly. I've gone into shops and and you know I do shop visits, and I'll have to talk to you about that afterwards. But we uh, mm-hmm. we'll go into a shop visit, and I'll 
I'm just watching the employees because I used to have like at one of my Sears stores I had 122 employees. Jeez. Yeah, and 14 tire in 14 operating bays, you know, and I mean we we had a lot of a lot of work, and yeah. uh, I can remember, you know, I was always on the guys about. After before you get into anybody's vehicle, you make sure you're completely clean. If you have to put a new shirt and pants on, you do it. You know, we don't want cleaning bills, you know, for upholstery or anything like that. And I'll go into a shop and I'll see guys that are just it's like, when was the last time the guy washed his hands? Yeah. You know, it's he's got grease behind his ears, you know. It's like I don't think mm-hmm. he's taking a shower this week. <laughs> you know, that kind of thing. And it's just it just amazes me that uh you know, but they but they may turn a wrench and they may understand, you know, exactly what they, you know, what needs to be done. And they may be a great mechanic, but, you know, they're, uh, sometimes the, the, there's just something there that, that's not appealing. Yeah, I, I'll, I'll say that the, the real gems of that industry have long-term careers already. It's so rare that you'll find a new one that's good. Most people, unless they're moving to a new area or something, they're they're kept very tight leashes by their owners of their companies if they're good. Right. Um, it's so hard to find a good guy that you can count on, and, um, and once you get one, you gotta hold on to him. You gotta pay him well and hold on to him. Yeah, because the good um, ones they they can get. You know, somebody wants to snag them, or they want to do the work themselves. Yeah, yeah, they get cherry picked, yep. or you know, there's other things life takes you in different directions, right? I mean, I lost one of my best guys three months, well, six months ago to, uh, he got married, right? Had a, had a baby and moved closer to their family and it's going to happen. Right. But finding the guy to fill that guy's spot, you know, it's just a, it's a challenging thing. Absolutely. So what is, uh, what's next? I, I, I know you're married. Um, yeah. You've been married. Got what? two kids, uh, been married since 2014. Okay. Uh, Kate, my, my beautiful wife, is a school teacher, and we have two sons, twin boys. They're now seven, uh, and they go to school at her school. And, you know, we've got a good life here in Prunedale, California. Um, I see myself in the next probably couple of years getting more back into the writing game uh, part-time. Um, one of the companies that's approached me recently, I've started writing some stories for. I haven't published them yet, but we're working on it. Uh, metal cloak they're uh looking to make their website more informational absolutely and, uh, they're I'm one starting of our partners for them yeah they're great mattson and the crew they're just awesome people so i've been friends with them since early on when when they first bought rev 111 i was one of the very first guys to do a story about their stuff cool. and uh, of course i'm good friends with scott becker over there so it's just a natural fit excellent since you you found you found off road, you, you enjoyed it, you loved it, and then you decided you want to make a career in it. How did you know? I, you you did it by you know doing the magazine thing and looking for an opening. What do you suggest for somebody that wants a career in off road? What whether it's writing or anything else? What's your what's your secret for success? Well, you know, really it's, it's inject yourself into what you want to do. Don't be on the side, sidelining it. Like really when I called John Thompson and said, how can I help four wheeler magazine put on top truck challenge? Is there anything that you guys need on the local level that I can help you with? And it just so happened that there was a huge drought and the, 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 um, a winery that's adjacent to Hollister Hills was suing Hollister Hills for dust migration, right? And they needed water trucks because it was a hot summer event and there's going to be dust migrating. So luckily, you know, I called a friend of mine and networked a water truck to this event. So they had two instead of one. That was injecting myself into something I, I really didn't have anything to do with. So if you really want to do something, you figure out a way to inject yourself into it, whether you're getting paid or not, and get your feet in the door and mingle with the people involved and, and you know, basically make some advocates on the other side and then chase it with all your might. Like when I literally left a good paying job in the Bay Area to move to L.A., 
to rent a room and not have a job on the whim of maybe getting this job at four wheeler. That's a huge leap of faith. And you got to take those leaps, especially when you're young. If you don't take those leaps, you'll regret it in life. So I tell people any chance you get to do something that's, you know, out of the, out of this world or amazing opportunity wise, take it. Don't, don't sit on the sidelines. You'll always kick yourself if you didn't take those opportunities. And when you're young, especially you have time to, to regroup and, you know, catch up if it was a bad choice. So really I tell people, if you figure out what you want to do, force yourself into it. I mean, if college isn't for you, look, look at my path. I did it. I mean, I, I didn't go to, I didn't get the degree that I should have had to be a four wheeler magazine editor, but I did it. And it still was the best experience of my life. So yeah, all you got to do is be passionate about something and force your way in. Don't take no for an answer. Perfect. What a great segue. That's awesome. Hey, Robin, I want to say thank you so much for for spending the last hour plus um, talking with me and sharing your life with uh, with all of our listeners in the off road world. And uh, I really appreciate it. And uh, like I said, I, I I want to I'll call you here in the next couple of weeks. And I'm living in Northern California in Placerville right now, so um, I'd like to uh, maybe make a shop visit and come visit you. Oh, yeah, I would love it, man. Okay, sounds good. All right. So thank you very much. Hope you enjoyed it. Thank you. All right, I did. Thank you. Okay. Appreciate it. Have a good one. All right, bye. 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 Well, that's another episode of Conversations with Big Rich. I'd like to thank you all for listening. If you could do us a favor and uh, leave us a review on any podcast service that you happen to be listening on, or send us an email or a text message or a Facebook message, And let me know uh, any ideas that you have, or if there's anybody that you have that you think would be a great guest, please forward the contact information to me so that we can uh, try to get them on. And always remember, live life to the fullest. Enjoying life is a must. Follow your dreams and live life with all the gusto you can. Thank you.